podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I hope everyone had an excellent Easter for those of you who celebrate it. I know I ate too much, as always. I have two parts for you on today's pod. In part one, we'll review Napoli's win over Lecce on Good Friday. And in part two, we will preview our match against Milan on Wednesday. And I'm joined by a guest to help me out with that. He's probably our most regular guest on the pod at this point. Vincenzo, how are you doing? Good, Joe. And if that's true, uh, I'm absolutely honored. Yeah, I think it is. I haven't I haven't tallied it, but you're definitely up there. And, and there's a reason for it, because you always bring great insights to the show. So it's a pleasure to have you on, as always. All right, so let's start with the match against Lecce, which might have left a bit of a bitter taste in people's mouths. Despite the final result, we won 2-1 to one on goals from Giovanni Di Lorenzo and a Lecce own goal. And Di Francesco scored for Lecce. Let's begin with that bitter taste I think we might be able to turn some of the negatives into a positive as we talk this through on the episode, which is partly why I wanted to bring you on because, you know, we've talked about, we talk about every match offline, but I think you might be able to take the positive spin on things. And I think the main reason that Napoli fans are concerned is because on the whole, we probably didn't play that much better against Lecce than we did in the 4-0 loss to Milan. Of course, Milan are the reigning champions of Serie A, while Lecce are a newly promoted club. Would it be unfair to say that we were lucky to be playing against the 16th place club in Serie A and not a quote-unquote better side? They may be 16th place, but I don't know that going away to Lecce is very lucky this season in particular, where they've taken some points off of the bigger teams and they can be a thorn in your side. Don't forget, we dropped points to them even in the Maradona earlier this season. So I don't think that in this day and age with the current climate of Serie A that any away game is easy, in particular Lecce. So although maybe it's not as difficult as an Inter or Lazio away game, I still think it's you know not something we could have just taken for granted. A friend asked me why I think Napoli are suddenly struggling, which is... Not a question that's easy to answer, but I I gave it my best shot on my three takeaways piece on the website. So let me walk you guys through that and then Vin, you can weigh in and feel free to, you know, jump in as I go through this. But the first reason for me is simply the absence of Victor Osman. I think, you know, a lot of people kind of dismissed his absence because prior to the Milan match, we had a perfect record, seven wins in seven games when Victor didn't play. But for me, removing Osman is not just removing his goals and his finishing, his absence just completely changes the tactics of our opponent. First, it allows them to play more compact, which is something I mentioned in my preview. Marco Baroni mentioned playing compact a couple of times in his pre-match conference. And I think it's a lot easier to play compact when Victor isn't on the field. When he is on the field, defenders have a pretty difficult choice to make. They can either remain compact, but when we have the ball, say, inside our own half, 
that means that to stay compact, the back line has to push up. Well, what happens when the back line plays high against Napoli and we have Victor on the field? We just play the long ball over the top and he destroys you with his pace. The alternative is for the back line to play deeper to keep Victor in front of them, but that stretches them. That makes them less compact, which means we have more space in the midfield for the likes of Zielinski and Lobotkin and Gisa to do their thing. Now, there is another way for the opponent to remain compact when Osimen is on the pitch. Instead of the back line pushing up, the front line can drop. That's what we call a low block. So if you're wondering why so many teams play a low block against us, that's kind of the basic logic that they follow, right? Of course, the low block invites wave after wave of attack, and we can beat opponents in the air and from the set piece. We also have great depth, so when we start using our bench, against these guys who are just chasing us all match they tire out and then that ends up working to our advantage as well so all of that is to say that without oc men it's much easier for our opponents to play compact without exposing themselves to the long ball the other thing that oc men does is that he attracts a lot of attention right so Typically, you have one center back who's tasked with marking Osimen, and then the other one just kind of provides the support. They double team or whatever. That pulls the defenders away from Cavada, who is then left isolated on the wing, and he can run at defenders 1v1. So when Osimen doesn't play, those extra resources can then be redeployed to double or triple team Cavada, which then limits his effectiveness. And if you take away our two biggest attacking threats in Cavada and Osimen, then naturally it'll be more difficult for us to score. We lead the league in scoring by a wide margin, no less, yet we only scored two goals in our last two matches. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Victor's absence is felt, as you said, not just in terms of the goals, but everything he adds to the team, leading the line, his personality, his speed. He makes teams afraid to break out of the shell I mean, you're automatically almost on the defensive if you're facing Victor. You, you know, Milan, for example, and even Lecce came at Napoli quite a bit with the pressing and stuff. You can't do that with Victor. It's just that you're basically asking to get punished. So absolutely, we miss him on so many levels. And Simeone and Raspadori are both capable players, but neither of them are in tip-top form either. Raspadori is just coming back from an absence. And then Simeone, when he came on versus Lecce, was injured almost right away. So again, it's not like we have an alternative who's at their best either. Yeah, exactly. And we'll talk about the striker situation in part two when we preview the Milan match. The other thing I wanted to point out, though, is that people might still ask, well, if Osiman's absence is so important, then why did we still win those seven games without him earlier in the season? And my answer to that question is simply that we're more tired now. You know, Osiman's first injury was in the first quarter of the season, so everyone was still fresh. We're now heading into the final quarter of the season, and certain key players have clocked a lot of minutes and a lot of kilometers. I posted a graphic on Twitter and, and on the same piece, my three takeaways piece, that showed that before Sunday's matches, we had five players in the top 25 in all of Serie A in terms of minutes played. In order, Di Lorenzo, Meret, Kim, Lobotka, and Angisa. And even after the Sunday matches, Angisa dropped to 29th, but it was only because all the goalkeepers that started on Sunday bumped them down a little bit. And there are 11 goalkeepers in that top 25. So if you remove them, Napoli have still four players in the top 20 in terms of the most minutes played in the league. And that doesn't even account for minutes played in the Champions League or on international duty. And then you add in the associated travel. So these guys are tired. Like Napoli had 16 players leave the team for the March international break, which is a lot of players. So fatigue for me is a big part of it. 
we've looked really slow in the last two matches, both physically in terms of our movements on the park, how we're pressing, how we're showing for the ball when we have possession, and also in terms of our decision-making, we just seem a little bit slower normally than I think we have been earlier in the season. You know, we heard Kim talk about how exhausted he was after South Korea's international friendly matches. And then the third reason for me that I gave on this site was perhaps the weight of what they're about to achieve has finally dawned on these players. You know, you look at the city now and it seems like it's just constant. Every day it, it builds a little bit more, a little bit more. And there's more blue and white ribbons and there's more Scudetti with the number three on it. And, and the city is preparing for this title that even as superstitious as Napoli is as a city, even they have now accepted that this is actually going to happen. And I just wonder if that started to weigh on the players a little bit, if they're feeling that pressure a little bit. You know, at the beginning of the season, everyone's expectations were so low that they were able to play a lot more freely. They they played with a lot more peace mentally, whereas maybe now as we approach the final quarter and that home stretch, it's starting to weigh on them a little bit. Vin, I'll let you comment on that first, and then we can move on to some of the positive takeaways from this match. For sure. On your second point, 100%, I agree. There's tiredness was a huge factor. I think first in the Milan game, especially because that was right after the international break. And then, of course, a little bit in the Lecce game, because if you're that exhausted in the Milan game and then you lose and then you have a game a few days later, it's not like you're going to fully recoup. Although I did think that there were certain players who were quite bad, uncharacteristically so, in Milan's game and not quite as much in Lecce's game. For example, like Kim was much better. Lobotka was better. Di Lorenzo even had a bad game versus Milan and was incredible versus Lecce. We'll get into that more, I'm, I'm sure. But I definitely think that mental and physical tiredness, mainly I think more so due to the international break than anything, because you mentioned the players who've played the most for Napoli. Di Lorenzo, Lobotka, Meret. Was it Kim? Yeah, Kim and Anguissa. Kim and Anguissa. And to me... Milan game notwithstanding, because again, that was right after the international break. Other than Angisa, we haven't seen much of a dip in, in like Di Lorenzo and Kim and Lobotka, you know, for the most part. So although that plays a factor, I think really you leave your club where you're really having this intense focus, you're going towards this goal, and then you got to go away to your country. You play some of these guys like Kim play two games, including friendlies. Di Lorenzo, I believe, played both games, right, for Italy. And then you come back immediately. It's hard to get right back into that groove. And, of course, we came back versus a very, very motivated Milan team. And even this Lecce team was quite motivated, especially because they saw blood in the water after our loss. So they really came at us and definitely had a little bit more energy, although I did think our levels are slowly creeping towards what we need them to be. In regards to the third point, I do think there's a mental component, but I don't necessarily think it's the weight of expectation because of the fact that we're so far ahead, where even if we drop points here and there, I don't think that they're actually worried about not winning. I think that it was more the Milan game was a 4 nothing loss. We're not used to losing in that way. We haven't lost in that way to any team this season. And even though that may have been because of more physical aspects, then you get in your head a little bit like, okay, we just lost 4 nothing. We're going away to Lecce. They see the blood in the water. And we also know a few days later after the Lecce game, we have to face that Milan team again in the Champions League away from home. And so I think it's the fact that this Lecce game, for example, was sandwiched between 
those two Milan games. And because of what happened in the first one, that mentally we may have been slightly apprehensive, a little bit less lucid and free as we normally play, more because of the fact that this specific game was sandwiched between the, the Milan loss and the next Champions League game, rather than the weight of expectation. It just in my impression. No, that makes sense. I mean, I was even listening to the Italian football podcast earlier today, and both Nima and Carlo kind of alluded or suggested that perhaps Napoli had even intentionally taken their foot off the gas a little bit, knowing that Milan match was coming, right? And trying to conserve energy without making too many changes to the squad. I think at the end of the day, the most important thing and really all that matters is that Napoli won, right? A loss or maybe even a draw might have had more significant psychological impacts. But at the end of the day, the signature of champions is that they find a way to win matches. We've had a few of those moments already this season. You know, the first win over Milan, well, the only win over Milan at the San Siro. Both wins against Roma, first with the Osiman goal, then the Simeone goal. And it's also worth noting, as you suggested earlier as well, that Lecce are this season's giant slayers, right? Like this season alone, they've already taken points from us, Fiorentina, Atalanta twice, Lazio, Milan, Roma. And to their credit, they nearly became the first team to take points away from us in both matches this season. Now only Fiorentina and Inter could still do that. But Lecce held us to a slightly lower XG than Milan did, which itself was one of our lowest XGs of the season. Lecce's XG wasn't great either, but they did create their fair share of chances they're just their finishing wasn't great and that's probably why they're one of the lowest goal scoring teams in the league but you know it felt like they were constantly threatening in the first half they were only the fifth team this Serie A campaign to outshoot us which was something I was shocked by when I saw that stat I think they had 11 shot attempts to our nine so to take four out of six points against a team this season that's been difficult for all the top sides is actually not that bad of course, leave it to Napoli to concede a goal to a team who hasn't scored in five matches. <laughs> but Vin, I thought, as and you kind of suggested this as well with your point on Kim and Di Lorenzo, our defense was a bit better in this match than they were against Milan, even if they were still a little bit below our standard. Absolutely. Like, like I said earlier, Di Lorenzo and Kim, for me, jumped up several levels from the Milan game. Even Rui and Rachmani, I just think overall, even Moret, everyone just seemed better. And it wasn't just because of the opposition. You could tell that they had a little bit more time to settle in. They weren't coming directly from their country and, and having that in their mind. And with someone like him, he also had the controversy you know, in his country playing in his mind versus Milan. So I think that their level went up. And I think even Lobotka was better. But our defense is also you know, the whole team defense. You know what I mean? And I think that Still, some of our attacking and midfield players were not at their best, in particular Angisa, and, and he also, of course, contributes hugely to the way that we defend. Absolutely. I can think everything is kind of linked together, right? So going back to the point about being tired, what we saw was a lot of players getting caught out of position. When that happens, you find yourself chasing the ball. That makes you even more tired. That puts your defense in awkward positions. It exposes yourself to the counterattack. You saw all the space that Milan had in that match. So definitely, especially for Spalletti's system, they, they attack as a team and they defend as a team. I thought the defending on the goal was really poor. It seemed like a bunch of people kind of got their tasks wrong. And Gisa was, he was goal side on Baskiroto with the cross to the second post, but didn't win that header. It looked like Kim kind of lost sight of Asan Cisse. Maybe he was expecting the header from Basquiroto to be closer to the goal, and it was kind of like a cutback. 
he hits the bar, then Lobotka and Angisa weren't able to chase down the loose ball, and then Di Francesco puts it in the back of the goal. But as you said, I thought Kim was better in this match than he was against Milan. Lecce just couldn't get past him, <laughs> you know, and it was the same old Kim where not only was he defending his position, kind of like the Koulibaly that we all loved, where he was also defending other people's positions, getting over to the wings and helping out Mario Rui or help supporting Rachmani on the other side. Other than this, the assist, which I'll come back to in a minute, I don't think his passing was necessarily that much better in this match than it was against Milan, but you could probably say that about most of our backline or even most of our team. I mean, Mario Rui was only the only defender who outperformed his average pass completion rate in this match out of the back four. Rachmani struggled a little bit with the pace of Asan Cisse. He, you know, there was a couple tactical fouls that led to a yellow card in the first half. We nearly conceded the equalizer, a second equalizer right after we scored or right after the own goal. And and again, Cissé almost got behind Rachman. He just missed with the slide there. So defensively better, but still not spectacular, I think I would say. But our defenders were involved in both of our goals. So let's start with the game winner, which was the second one. Then obviously we were lucky with how the ball ended up in the back of the goal, but it still came from an excellent cross from Mario Rui. I mean, is it... Mario Rui's first goal of the season for us. You know, it's almost, you could almost <laughs> okay. say, you could almost, there's a whole take here where this was, this was actually Rui's goal. You know, I mean, all jokes aside, people even forget a nice Kvara back heel to Rui to set up the chance for that cross. And then Rui put in a very dangerous ball. And by putting in a dangerous ball, well-timed, you're putting it out there that it could end up in the back of the net, whether or not he knew that, of course, it, it was going to happen like that. No, but someone could have got there. Di Lorenzo was right there waiting as well. I think that it was the attacking intent and the beautiful ball by Rui that caused the goal to happen, even if it wasn't t- directly due to his shot. Falcone is a fantastic goalkeeper. We saw the saves he made on Lozano in the first half, Elmas in the second half. He did make a bit of a mess on this play. It looked like I think in that split second, he realized that Gallo had passed the ball back to him. And, you know, obviously he can't use your hands and he kind of panicked. I'm sure if he could do it all over again, he would have just punched the ball away and taken the foul. Because I had to even look this up because I wasn't even sure. Like, what happens in that situation if someone passes back to the keeper in the area? It turns out it's an indirect free kick. And if it happens inside the six-yard box, then you take an indirect free kick from the closest part of the six-yard box to where the foul was committed. So this would have been like a crazy situation. We probably would, it would have been difficult to score from there. Like a f- indirect free kick six yards away from the goal, you basically have the entire Lecce team standing on the line building a wall. Um, and, you know, because it's indirect, as soon as the first player touches it, everyone's going to run at that ball. Who knows what happens in that situation? But obviously, you know, he panicked. We get the fortunate goal. But, you know... It is worth noting, in addition to what you pointed out with Cavada's little backheel pass, it really was the result of positive play. Like This was one of the small stretches in the match where I felt like that's the way Napoli play. Even if we haven't been doing it for the whole match over the last couple of matches, we actually turned the ball over twice with the high press. Both times it was Lobotka. First, he won the ball back from Joan Gonzalez, relatively high up the park. Then... Di Lorenzo tried to play a given goal with Lozano on the right wing. Lecce broke it up, but again, Lobotka stepped up and won the ball back. Then Anguisa crossed the ball into the area. 
Basquiroto heads it clear, but then Elmas is the first to the second ball. So we were really getting that high press going. And then there was a sequence of passes kind of between the midfield line and the attacking line where whether it was Elmas and Raspadori or Lobotka and Raspadori, Mario Rui and Raspadori, where we were passing the ball vertically, Raspadori was dropping, passing the ball back, and then eventually he swung it out to Cavada, and then Mario Rui crossed that ball into the area. So I thought that was a really good snapshot of what we're accustomed to seeing from Napoli, and it was a well-deserved goal, even if it was a bit of a fortunate kind of finish. The first goal didn't require any luck whatsoever. Vin, how about that cross from Kim Min Jae and then the finish I'm, from the I mean, why, is, is Kim our best right winger? <laughs> 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 I mean, it's it, it's truly like, I, I mean, I feel like every time I'm on the show, I just, especially lately, I'm just always singing Kim's praises. But for a center back, first of all, to even be in that position, let alone do a perfect cross from the right wing, you're, you're, and he plays as a left-sided center back. It's unbelievable that he was able to pick out the perfect cross, perfectly timed, perfect paced cross, and then an amazing uh, header by our captain. The reason Kim was even on the wing in the first place was because that play began with a free kick after uh, Lobotka was fouled on the left side of the midfield. So clearly, even when Lobotka maybe appears to not be at his best, he's still making meaningful contributions. Like on both goals, he was involved in one way or the other. But yeah, it's not often that you see a central defender popping up on the right wing, let alone playing in a perfect cross like Kim did there. And then the finish from Di Lorenzo was pure class as well. Granted, the defending was poor. There was sort of no one near him in the area, but he picked that top corner beautifully. He left Falcone with just no chance of making the save. Lecce were enjoying a good spell during the match, and it just felt like that was a situation where the captain put his team on his shoulders and carried them forward even the way he ran to the bench to celebrate and all his teammates were coming to celebrate with him and he was just kind of hurting the the crowd towards the bench we saw Spalletti giving him an applause as they kind of ran past to celebrate with his teammates not to stir up any emotional reactions because people get very emotional when we talk about Lorenzo Insigne but I did feel like Di Lorenzo or I do feel like Di Lorenzo has become the captain that we've kind of been missing the past few seasons. I just think that some people are natural leaders from a personality point of view, and some are not. And I don't think that's something that you can fake. It's kind of like singing. You, you can either, you're, you're a good singer or you're not a good singer. And I just think that Di Lorenzo is a natural leader and Lorenzo Insigne probably isn't from a personality point of view. And so Forgetting about you know their qualities as players, and, and Insigne had many, which we saw for a decade. I definitely think that Di Lorenzo is the perfect choice for captain. He's a fantastic leader. You can just tell he resonates more a uh, calm focus rather than an emotional up and down. He's strong. He doesn't get too much in his head if things are not going well. And he pops up in the big moments with huge performances. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. It's not a coincidence. It's not just because of Kvara and all the new factors we also have the fact that he is our captain this year that is a huge part of why we are doing so well because we've spoken how many times about the mental aspect of the game and I think that other than the coach the captain kind of helps project a certain mentality onto the team I talked about the minutes played earlier and Di Lorenzo has played more minutes than Alex Meret who has only missed one game (laughs) 
<laughs> it's just unbelievable. And, and maybe what's even more impressive about that is the fact that at least from the celebrations after Italy won the Euros, he's also a smoker, which just makes this guy must have the biggest lungs God has ever put in a, in a person. <laughs> I don't know. It's just unbelievable. But yeah, I think he has really embraced that role. I completely agree with you as well. He kind of has this very calm demeanor. He never seems to get too high, never seems to get too low. He's always the first guy to go hug whoever scores a goal. So yeah, he's he's just doing everything right. And as you said, another very, very important part of of this collective okay that will do for part one in part two we will preview the match against milan on wednesday welcome to part two of the forza napoli podcast if you like the show consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash forza napoli pod it's entirely voluntary there are no set tiers but it does help us to continue to produce content both on the podcast and on our website at fortsanapolipress.com. And thank you, Vincent, for becoming a patron. Okay, so let's talk about the Milan match on Wednesday. Vin, after Milan absolutely battered us at the Maradona last round, it felt like they had a clear psychological advantage over us. Do you think that this round's results with us kind of scraping this win over Lecce and Milan dropping points to Empoli in a scoreless draw, does that change that psychological advantage or does it not change because Milan still have that head-to-head kind of edge over us? I don't know how much it changes Milan's mental, but I think it changes ours because I think we needed to get the three points versus Lecce regardless of how it came. And we already spoke about that. That's a win of champions. You're not always going to win pretty. Sometimes it's going to be gritty. Sometimes you're even getting outplayed, but you need to score a lucky goal, quote-unquote lucky goal. The fact that we got those three points in a tough situation was huge for us. Because I think had we drawn or had we lost versus Lecce, that really would have put us up against the wall versus Milan. Now we know, okay, we were starting to click at certain times. Like you mentioned, there were periods where we look like the old Napoli, certain players were elevating like Kim and Di Lorenzo, who were, who were a disaster versus Milan, which that was their only disaster game of the whole season. So I think that the fact that we were sort of getting closer to ourselves and we got the three points is huge for us. Less so for Milan, because maybe in their heads they're thinking, okay, but we drew, but we didn't have, uh, we, did, we rotated a lot. That wasn't the same Milan. That, But I think for us, for Napoli, definitely it improves us from a mental point of view that we got the three points. Yeah, I think Napoli will certainly get a boost in confidence from the win over Lecce, particularly because of how it came about. Like we talked about in part one, it was nowhere near Napoli's best performance. If anything, it was one of our worst. But despite relinquishing even a lead, we still came away with a win. So the win itself will give them some confidence. But even more than that, I think it might just ease their nerves a little bit. You know, with Juve losing to Lazio, any lingering doubts about Napoli winning the Scudetto have now been extinguished. You know, really, there was no bad result in that Lazio-Juve match for us. Because Lazio won, even if Juve get their 15 points back, they would still be 15 points behind us, which means Napoli clinches with four wins and a draw in the last eight or nine matches. There's no guarantee that Juve even get their points back. And even if they were, I mean, there's no guarantee they're not handed another points penalty. So I think we can kind of put Juve aside. If Juve won, then Lazio would have been 19 points behind us, so the magic number would have been down to three. Even with the win, it's still only four. And of course, had they drawn, then both teams would have been two points further behind us. So 
there was no really bad result there. But I think Napoli's win over Lecce, regardless of how it came about, was psychologically very important for us, as we both mentioned already. For Milan, I think Stefano Pioli took a calculated risk and it backfired on him a little bit because that top four is a pretty intense battle. So he didn't want to draw points there. I don't know if this means he's prioritizing the Champions League over Serie or, you know, again, it was a calculated risk. I'm sure he probably thought he could still win the match with the squad that he fielded. If you include Malik Tia starting over Simon Kier, Pioli rested five of his regular starters against Empoli. He wisely stuck with the 4-2-3-1 formation, which worked so well against Napoli. I don't think there was any way he could change the formation, but he started Rebic, Pobega, Salamakers, and Origi as his front four over Leal, Krunic, Brahim, and Giroud, respectively. Obviously, Pioli thought that they could still get a win, and had they won, they would have been third in the table, four points clear of Inted and fifth. Instead, they're fourth, only one point ahead of Inted, which means that if Juve did get their points back, Milan would be outside of the top four. That said, like you said, I think because they effectively started their B team, I think they'll be able to brush aside this result relatively easily. I don't think it'll affect them too much heading into the Napoli match. So for me, I'd say Milan might still have a bit of a psychological advantage because of that 4-0 win over us. There's also this point that Milanisti keep raising about their so-called European DNA. They even produced this video that they posted on their social media accounts all about their, their DNA then do you think Milan's history in this tournament adds to that psychological advantage that we've been talking about? For them, it probably does. It's like a placebo effect, almost, which does is scientifically there is a placebo effect. As you know, if you give someone sugar pills and you tell them it's going to work, it, it'll work a little bit. So I think it's kind of that. I don't think like, there's no one there who's ever done anything in, in Europe, you know. But you put on the Milan shirt, you know that you're, you're seven-time European champions. I'm sure that gives you an extra even 5%, let's say, as a player, just a little bit of belief, maybe. That's not to say that Napoli are at a disadvantage, but I think it's a slight advantage for the Milan players. Even if it's just kind of in their own head, sometimes that makes a difference. But I don't think that that's really going to affect the outcome of this two-legged tie to a very big degree. It might be a small percentage. Call me a hater, but I think it's a load of nonsense. <laughs> maybe even a little bit desperate that they... They feel like they have to go out of their way to convince this player that it's in their DNA to win these these matches because, you know, they couldn't otherwise do it on, on their own merit. I think if you look at Milan's recent history, it's, you know, there's no denying their European pedigree, right? Like that's, those are facts. That's, that's history. But it's been a while since they've actually done anything meaningful in the Champions League. Prior to last season, Milan hadn't played in the Champions League in seven seasons, and in their return last season, they finished dead last in their group. Other than a couple of personalities in the locker room, like Zlatan or Paolo Maldini, you know, technical director, they don't have that much more Champions League experience than we do. And we have, yes, we have almost none, but neither do they on a sort of individual level. They have Giroud who has plenty of experience sort of on the big stage, both in Europe and on in, you know, international level. Brahim has like one Champions League match appearance with Real Madrid but I guess you know you're kind of in that environment also by the same logic Napoli don't have Serie A winning DNA either if it's been that long since we've won the Serie A and here we are with a 16 point lead over our nearest rival with only nine matches left to play and 
that's not to say that Milan won't beat Napoli. It's quite possible that they will, especially after seeing them beat us only 10 days ago or whatever it was. But what I'm saying is if that happens, it'll be because they got the better of us tactically or they executed their plan better than we did, not because this team is the genetic offspring of guys like Costa Corta and Nesta and Shevchenko, Kaka, these guys, right? I mean, I don't know why this bothers me, but it kind of does. So I'm hoping we can maybe use that same DNA video and as motivation for Napoli. Let's move on to the starting lineups. We're recording this on Monday, but the big story today was that Napoli's training report said that Victor Osiman did personalized training on the pitch and in the gym. Giovanni Simeone did therapy, which is not surprising after we saw the injury he suffered against Lecce. And Giacomo Raspadori did personalized training on the pitch as well. Then if none of them are available, how do you think Spalletti should line up his front three? How I think he should line up, meaning my opinion, uh, not necessarily my guess of what he will do, although they are slightly tied together, is I think you have to play Kvara as a false nine. First of all, you know, he seemed like he kind of did that anyway once Simeone got hurt versus Lecce and Raspadori had already been subbed. And then also, I mean, I just think that Kvara is the most natural goal scorer. We've seen him drift centrally before. He's technical, he's two-footed, he's tall, he's quite fast. And so even though he is not a traditional striker, if anyone could play false nine, I think he's probably our guy. Also, Spalletti has a history of making players like Totti play as a false nine. And I do think that Kvara can do a job there. So for me, I would probably have Elmas on the left wing. Also because even though he'll be playing as a winger, technically it's an extra midfielder. We want to make sure we win the midfield battle, especially in this away game where they're going to really be coming at us. So I think Elmas adds a physical presence. And I think he scored, what, six or seven goals this season. So he has some goal scoring pedigree recently. And then I would probably favor Lozano on the right because of his speed and his counter ability, especially with no victor there. It would be nice to have someone who's super fast. Not that Kvara and Elmas are slow by any means, but I do think that he gives you more of an outlet. But perhaps Spalletti might be leaning towards Politano just because of the fact that he was rested. But either way, whoever starts on the right, for me, it's more the big shift would be playing Elmas as a left winger and Kvara as a false nine if neither Raspadori or Osimen or Simeone are available. So that's probably who you would play as a front three. What do you think Spalletti will play as a front three? Well, he did play Kvara there, as I said, versus Lecce. So assuming he does that, I don't know who else would play on the left wing other than Elmas. So for me, it's more like I'm thinking Chucky, and he's probably favoring Politano just because of the fact that he was rested. But it is a little bit strange to me since Politano was one of the worst, I thought, versus Milan in our 4 nothing loss. Unless Spalletti just happens to know that it was because of some other physical issue that why Politano was off, or maybe he trusts him more defensively, you know, and might be because of that. So for him, I think he's leaning towards Politano, whereas I would be leaning towards Lozano, but I do think the other two might be the same. Okay. I think we're probably all holding out hope that one of Osimen or Raspadori will be available. I mean, We haven't seen the official report on Simeone, but all indications are that he's going to be out for a little while. Osiman trained on his own on Easter Sunday, which was a day off for the team. So he's doing everything he can to be fit for Wednesday. But 
it wouldn't be a huge surprise to me if he doesn't play until the second leg. Like I could see him playing maybe 20 minutes off the bench against Hellas Verona just to get him ready to start against Milan in the second leg. Raspadori was definitely the big surprise on the training report. I think the best case scenario is that they were just being cautious as the Lecce match was his first start in almost two months after he had that thigh injury. The worst case scenario is that he aggravated the thigh injury and you know, that kept him out for all of March and half of February. So I think Tuesday will be kind of the big day that we'll know based on the training report. If Raspadori completes the full group training session, he's starting on Wednesday against Milan. If not, then we probably have something else going on. I think it's certainly interesting to see Cavada play at striker. I mean, like you said, we saw him play the final 10 minutes of the Lecce match. I'm kind of leaning towards Chuki playing at striker just because We've seen him play in that position quite a bit as well, both with Napoli and the Mexican national team. He'll give us that bit of pace that kind of replaces the the Osimhen pace. Obviously, he's not as great aerially as Victor is. He doesn't just doesn't have the size. And then if we did that, then I think we'd still play Cavada on the left and Politano on the right. And Elmas is kind of your utility guy as always. He can replace either winger or maybe come in on the midfield. No matter who we start, we're going to be pretty short on depth. So there is also a possibility that we could see Alessio Zervin make an appearance at some point in this match. Let's move on to the midfield. We know for sure that Zielinski will come back into the starting lineup because he rested against Lecce. We know for sure that Stanislav Lubotka will start because while we have a replacement in Demba, there's such a huge drop-off in quality from one to the other that you can't not start Lobotka at Regista. One player we didn't talk about in part one who I thought played really well off the bench against Lecce was Tangi and Dombele. Do you think there's any chance that he starts over Angisa here? I think he may even be in better form and more fresh than Angisa, but I don't think there's a chance because I think that they're so different characteristic-wise that Spalletti is going to see Ndombele as more of a replacement for Zelensky if he goes off, for example. I just think that that might be the one weakness of Napoli's depth, other than a proper backup for Di Lorenzo, is just that really Angisa is very unique in this midfield. There's no one else with his characteristics, and neither Elmas nor Ndombele, despite being great players, are really a direct replacement for him. There's no one else who brings that physical presence and ball-winning ability that he has. And because of that, I think Spalletti is very reluctant to rotate him, and especially in a game where you know if we don't have our best attack, and Spalletti is worried about winning that midfield battle, I think that even if Angisa is at 70%, he's probably going to give him the edge out, uh, and start him over Ndombele. Yeah, in all likelihood, Spalletti will start Angisa because he basically plays him every single match. Ndombele picked up his fifth yellow card of the season against Lecce, which means he'll be suspended for the Hellas Verona match, which is actually a meaningful thing because that would have been a great match to put him in to give Angisa a rest, right? Like a Hellas Verona. I, I granted, you know, he's not a perfect replacement for Angisa, but you got to play someone there, whether it's Almas or Ndombele, just to give Angisa the occasional rest. And then if you look at the schedule, after Hellas Verona, we have the return leg against Milan. And then immediately after that, we have Juventus. So we played five matches over two weeks. And you just look at all of them and you can't really think of any one that you rest Angisa. Maybe it's even the Juventus match because they're so far back. I don't know. Although we could still rest Angisa for the Hellas Verona match. It just wouldn't, it would just mean that Ndombele doesn't play for him. I'm inclined to agree with you there. I think if we are going to rest Angisa in this next stretch, 
probably the Hellas Verona one makes the most sense because you can just do Zelinsky and Elmas flanking Lobotka and ask Elmas to add a little bit of his physicality, which he has some of. Yeah, I think that probably makes sense. And that way, Ngisa can be fresh for the return leg as well. There's also Gianluca Gaetano, but I feel like Spalletti's determined to make him a regista. So again, he might just be kind of like a late substitute option, you know, or if someone gets hurt or if we take a big lead against Hellas Verona or something. At the back, there's really only one position that's up for grabs. Would you start Mario Rui at left back or Matias Oliveira? Well, first of all, let me say that this is a huge luxury because it's one of those rare cases where I'm happy with either player. They're unique and they have different strengths and weaknesses, but both are really good starting quality players. Whereas, you know, the debate with Lozano and Politano, it's almost like, who are you willing to put up with more? You know what I mean? Neither one is like everyone's favorite. Whereas with Oliveira and Rui, both of them to me start on most teams. And I think to me, I'm a huge Rui fanboy, as you know. He helped us get the win versus Lecce. And he helped us get the win versus Milan when we were at San Siro in the first leg of the league matches. On the other hand, Rui wasn't great versus Milan at home when we lost 4 nothing, And Oliveira adds more of that physical presence and height and strength. So it's really a 50-50 to me. I think it depends also on who plays in attack. I do think that that also is a factor. So... Really, I think whoever Spalletti chooses, I have faith it will be the right choice. But I think until we know who's playing up top, which will kind of dictate our overall approach, then it's hard to necessarily choose if you want someone who has more of the crossing ability and attacking flair that Rui brings or someone who has a little bit more of the physical presence and speed of Oliveira. I think that last point is exactly right. I think if Osiman's fit to play, that makes it more likely that Mario Rui starts because he can cross the ball into the area. If we don't have Osiman, we know Simeone is not starting. Even if Raspadori starts, then I think Oliveira plays because, one, he's been Spalletti's preferred player in the Champions League already. So, so long as Oliveira is fit to play because he kind of missed some time with some back pain. He did return for that Lecce match, which is a good sign that he got that run in at the end of the match. Then I think it's more likely that Oliveira plays. I think he also provides to your point, that physicality that we could have probably used in that match against Milan. Like when you think of Brahim dribbling around the book on Mario Rui on that first goal, Oliveira is the type of player that would have just taken him out, right? And <laughs> accepted the yellow card or whatever it is. He's got a bit of that dirtiness to him in a good way. So I'm leaning more towards Oliveira and also just to change things up a little bit. Like we need to give Milan a bit of a different look because obviously we can't just play the exact same way that we played in the 4-0 loss. So that might be one way to mix it up a little bit and disrupt them a little bit. As I said, Pioli rested five of his regular starters. So as far as Milan's lineup goes, I'm not really expecting any changes. And it's hard to think of why he would really make too many changes after they beat us 4-0. You know, Tonali and Benacer, they were both so key to that midfield in the win. So you have to expect both of them to play. Those front four are all rested. The only player that maybe gets into the starting lineup, in my opinion, that's different than the match a week and a half ago is Malik Tia at center back. Just because I think Kyer was probably a good player to put in for his experience, knowing that he was playing against Simeone, who doesn't have the pace. You know, if you're worried about let's say Lozano playing at striker, Cavada, even Raspadori because he's smaller. 
maybe Tia provides a, a bit of a better matchup just because he's quicker. But otherwise, I think it's probably going to be the same lineup. Then before we wrap it up, I won't ask you for a prediction, but just given this whole striker situation, what result would you be content with in this first leg in Milan? Well, you know, given the fact that everyone was acting as if Napoli was already going to the final and, and blowing us up and hyping us up, I actually don't mind, even though I'm not happy with why we have been brought down to earth as far as expectations. I'm kind of happy that we are now going into this and between the 4 nothing loss and the fact that all of our strikers might be out, we are going to be seen probably as the underdogs. And, and I don't actually mind that. I think maybe that will give us a bit of an edge here and, and we go in a little bit hungrier, a little bit more the way we're used to going into these big games. I don't mind that. Because of that and the fact that this is just the first half of a longer game, you know, that's how you have to view these two-legged affairs. Anything like a draw, for example, any draw, I would be happy with. Absolutely. I think that would be a fantastic result if we could edge a draw, even to lose by one goal, especially if we score. Like, let's say we lose 2-1. It wouldn't be the end of the world. Keep it tight. And then in Napoli, with Victor hopefully back, possibly even Raspadori back for the bench and everybody refreshed, we can really go at them and be our best selves. You don't want to go in and aim for a draw. You want to go in and aim for a win. But I would be very happy with a re- any kind of result in this match. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, not to set the bar too low or to sound like I have a sort of loser's mentality or something, but I was going to say the same thing. Any result that's not a blowout loss, in other words, a obviously a win is great, a draw is okay, and even a loss by one goal is not so bad. Obviously, a win at the San Siro would be ideal, and it'd be great to make a statement win, even just to silence all the Milanisti who are so convinced they're the kings of Europe. If you can't tell, I've been very annoyed by Milan fans lately with all this European DNA nonsense. But also, even though the away goals rule doesn't really matter anymore, I think psychologically, a win away from home and a goal, as you said, would be really helpful. Even though we beat Milan earlier this season, they were the better side in both matches. So I think getting a win would just help us psychologically and and not just win, but win in a convincing way. It doesn't have to be a blowout, but, you know, have control of the match, play our game, dictate the tempo, all of those things would be absolutely ideal. But that said, a draw or a close loss would not be the end of the world either. I think at bare minimum is to stay close in this tie. And as you said, then we go back to the Maradona, we have Victor back in the squad, and we kind of control our own destiny, and we still like our chances of advancing to the semifinals. Then any final thoughts before we wrap it up? Yeah, I I just want to remind everyone what a brilliant moment we are in as a fan base, as a city, as a worldwide fan base, whether you have roots in Napoli, whether you're just a fan with no family ties, doesn't matter. We're all one big Napoli family. And your show is is such an example of that with your worldwide series and the fact that you have guests on from all over. We are all part of this big family who have been waiting to celebrate and, and have a party for 33 years and we've come close and we've suffered disappointments we are going to win this scudetto this year when the odds makers had us not even top four we have already gone farther than any previous napoli team ever in the champions league this is a dream season regardless of what happens versus milan 
in these next couple Champions League games. And that's not to say that I don't want to beat them and go on to the next round. And that's not to say that I don't care because I do. And I want to beat Milan, okay? 100%. But no matter what, this is a fantastic season. And we can't let the fact that the league win has seemed like a foregone conclusion because of the gap that we've created, which in and of itself is a fantastic achievement. We can't let that make us take it for granted because if this was a tight race right now for the Scudetto, okay, and let's say we were within three, four points of Juventus or, or whoever it might be, everyone would be saying, yeah, the league comes first. We want to win this. We're so close. You know, the Champions League is a bonus. But I think because of the fact that everyone kind of felt we won it like a month ago or whatever, it's kind of made us take it for granted and get a little bit greedy and say, oh, if we don't make it to the Champions League final, it's like a disappointment. No, no, absolutely not. This is already one of the best seasons. Certainly, I'm 33 years old. The last time we won, I was four months old. So for all intents and purposes, this is the best season of my life, okay? And, and for most of us. So I just want to remind us of that. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy even the ugly win versus Lecce with the lucky goal. This is all stuff that you're going to be telling your grandkids about, okay? And anything that happens now in the Champions League, regardless that our opponent is Milan, okay? Regardless of that, it's all cherry on top of a beautiful Sunday with whipped cream is already there. This is just the maraschino cherry, okay? No matter what, it's just the maraschino cherry. And I want that cherry because it adds that little finishing touch for sure. But at the same time, we can't have this attitude of like, oh, if we don't get past Milan, it's a big disappointment because I don't feel that way at all. That's very well said. I think Daniel Russo posted a, a similar voice note on Twitter today where he said, you know, if you asked me at the beginning of the season whether I'd want to win the Scudetto or advance to the semifinal of the Champions League, I'd probably tell you, I don't care if we get eliminated from the Champions League, as long as it makes sure we win the Scudetto, right? So, yeah, I think it's very important that we all kind of take a step back and and appreciate what's happening. Because as you said, it's so easy to take it for granted with such a big lead at the top of the table. And of course, with the way the draw has gone, it kind of feels like this golden opportunity to do something really special. But yeah, this is all gravy at this point. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the moments. Whatever happens in the Champions League, it's still a huge success for us this season. Okay, I think that's the perfect way to wrap up the episode. Thank you, Vin, for joining me today. Thank you again, as always, Joe. It's always a pleasure. Now, the pleasure is all mine. You can find Vincenzo on Twitter at VinBNapoli. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5. And you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Pod. If you like the show, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating and or a review on your favorite podcast platform. That always helps to spread the word. I will be back later in the week to review this match and to preview our next one, which is against Hellas Verona on Saturday. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Podcast Network.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 